we're going to be looking at something different today, and there's reason for that. We've been in a series uh, going through the book of Acts, looking at that chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, and uh, last week we started uh, looking at chapter 14 of the book of Acts, and it's a very lengthy passage, and one of the things that, that I, I realized that if I was to continue in Acts chapter 14, um, it, it, there's no way that I would have finished it up today, which meant we would have jumped into it and then taken off four weeks by getting into this Advent series. And on top of that, we have a family-style service, which for me to preach for an hour is going to be a very taxing, so I'm not going to do that. You're welcome. Um, so I'm just going to keep my words brief. And I want to focus on something a little bit different today. And so if you want to think about this in any way, shape, or form, think about this as sort of an intro into the Advent season. And what I want to look at today specifically is really the idea of the new covenant and what that means and why I feel like it's such a really important subject to think about, to consider, to ponder, to let it reshape who you are. Because at the end of the day, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are new covenant people. So that might be a phrase that's abstract to you, that's foreign to you. Um, I want to put a little bit of uh, a definition and understanding and insight into your thinking as to what this means. We are new covenant people. So before we jump into this, I'm going to uh, let our good friends, even though I, I don't know them, I, I hope to one day know them, uh, our good friends over at the Bible Project who do these incredible videos, um, and they have this great video on the two covenants. So I want to let them kind of sort of pave the way a little bit about thinking about the concept of covenants, and then we will take a look at the book of 2 Corinthians. If you want to open up there, you can, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll talk a little bit more about that and make some final closing thoughts, and then we'll spend some time singing together, and we'll wrap up this morning. So let's watch this video, and then just uh, let it shape your understanding as to what these concepts of the covenants are about. Sound good? If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil. But despite that, 
I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the Earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods. They allow horrible injustice. And so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. It's good, huh? Good stuff, good stuff. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, and actually allow Paul the Apostle to talk a little bit about that and form our thinking about this. Because really, at the end of the day, this, this is central to our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That God has done something for us. And that something that God has done for us is through Jesus. And Jesus is not just some abstract player on the stage of history. Jesus is within this storyline of all the people and the prophets of Israel. 
that just as the video points out so well, that Jesus saw himself. Jesus was literally the fulfillment of this new covenant. That Jesus comes, and on the night that he's betrayed, he sits down with his disciples. He shares none other than what was called the Passover meal, which was, this, which was basically like Freedom Day. When they would partake of the Passover meal, they would, it was a reminder. It was kind of like their 4th of July. It was a reminder that God set them free, that God saved them, set them free from their enemies, from their oppressors, that God himself was on their side. God was protecting and setting them free and liberating them. And Jesus sits down with them and basically celebrates this celebration of the Passover, this new freedom that was going to be found in his blood. We sang that song, it's your blood that saves me. And that night that Jesus takes this bread in this cup that was part of this long heritage, this storyline of the Passover, and he breaks it and he says, this is my blood of a new covenant. This language that Jesus used was actually borrowed from the prophets as they spoke about, as they talked about, as they looked forward to this new covenant that would one day come. Jesus literally is claiming, he's laying claim to all of that history, saying, I am the one who is fulfilling this new covenant. Though you have broken it, though you, your actions, your sin, your rebellion has contributed to this broken partnership with your creator, and though we have taken, I love the image, though you have taken your tree and you've walked away thinking that somehow you have life, yet in your hands you hold death. What a great image that is. Because the very things that we think God has given us or we steal from God or take away from God, we end up bringing death to all of these things. And you multiply that by 7 billion people on this planet, you have a planet filled with death. So the question is, is where's hope? And the hope is Jesus, God in the flesh, has come to undo death, to right that which is wrong. Another, the language that Paul uses is justify, to make that which is unjust just to justify something to set it right this is what god is up to so i want to think about just this concept um let's take a look real quick at the uh, book of second corinthians i'll wrap this up second corinthians chapter three and i want to just make some quick comparisons i have a little chart here that compares and contrasts some teachings that paul says about this in second corinthians chapter three and uh, we'll just make some comparisons. One, we see that the Old Covenant was carved in stone. Obviously, this is a, a picture of the covenant that was given to Israel by way of the Ten Commandments as well as the other 613 laws. And then secondly, we see that the New Covenant was actually written on hearts. And we see this prophesied by Jeremiah and others. Um, secondly, we see that this, was, this Old Covenant, was uh, Paul uses the phrase, it was a ministry or administration, maybe another way of thinking about this. It's an administration of death. Now, this oftentimes leads people to think, well, maybe the law is bad. Maybe the law was evil. The law was not bad, nor was it evil. So don't ever think that. That's a wrong form of thinking. The problem is, is that the law was in, un, unable or incapable of making you right. Let me give you the example. You can set out a law that says don't drive over 65. Does that speed limit, is that speed limit evil? It's not evil. Um, but it doesn't empower you nonetheless either. It doesn't make you, uh, make your heart swell with this intention to obey it, all right? Because it feels a little bit impersonal. And so the reality is Paul recognizes that the law in and of itself is good, yet it's powerless to actually motivate our hearts to do right. Does that make sense? In fact, 
you can go so far as to say that there's a tendency, there's some weird psychological reality about us that when we see a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch, what's the first thing that comes to our mind? Is we see that law and we want to rebel against it. So we want to touch the paint and make sure, is it really, really wet? And so we're rebellious in nature in that heart. You multiply that on a level of, of God and we are constantly violating or breaking or taking the tree and uprooting it and thinking that somehow we have in our hands life, but in reality, we hold in our hands death. We are contributors to that death and that reality in this world. The second thing to think about is to consider is that Paul describes it as a ministry of death. Uh, in contrast, the new covenant is the ministry of the Spirit, chapter 3, verse 8. Um, thirdly, he describes it as the old covenant, the ministry of condemnation, um, in chapter 3, verse 9, he describes it as the ministry of righteousness. God making right uh, by way of this new covenant of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Uh, the next thing we see is that it is the old covenant has glory. In other words, it's, there's something beautiful and remarkably uh, good about it. And yet, the, it has its limitations. And then Paul would go on to say that in verses 9 and 10, that this new covenant actually has greater glory. Its, its glory is, is so great because what he describes in the very last thing is that it's permanent, whereas the old covenant was temporary. It had sort of an expiration date, and it was, it was going to uh, spoil at some point or it was going to be replaced at some point. And in this context, we see that it will be replaced by this new covenant. And this is what Paul is saying, is that we are living as new covenant people. So... With that being said, I want to just summarize some final thoughts. There's a lot that I can talk about this. But again, like I said, due to time, due to the fact that we've got children in here, due to the fact that maybe if you are here and you're like, I wish we can go a lot longer, yes, please convince little ones of that. But it just simply doesn't work. So we've got to, be rec- we've got to recognize the fact that right now we've got limitations on this. So I want to just summarize with some thoughts about how this new covenant actually imp- impacts us. And this is what Paul carries out. Because in most of the letters and the writings that Paul the Apostle writes, he's basically unpacking or elaborating or uh, uh, bringing out to the conclusions of how does this concept of being brought into this new relationship with God actually impact our lives? How does it impact us? There's a lot of things that we could say about this, but I'm just going to focus on three and I'll wrap this up. First thing I want to see is in chapter 4, verse 1, is we see that it actually transforms our hearts. This new covenant actually transforms. It renovates. It, it, it radically revitalizes our hearts. It takes that which is dead and prone towards brokenness. And it's almost like God giving a brand new motor to drive us. Some form of brand new uh, uh, desires in our hearts is what the gospel does. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 in the King James Version says this, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. So you can just think about the three different ways in which he puts this. We have this ministry. Uh, we have received mercy. And he says, uh, we faint not. Another translation could also put it, we do not lose heart. In other words, we have this new heart, new desires, new passions that are part of who we are and the way that we think. And that's what the covenant, the new covenant does. It gives us a new center, a new drive, transforms us. Um, So rather than losing heart, rather than becoming faint of heart, rather than becoming overcome and overwhelmed by fears and crippled by anxieties, there is hope. So if that's you, if you find yourself in the midst of crippling anxieties, 
or fears that have this tendency to overcome you, please be aware of what the new covenant offers us. It gives you a new heart so that you begin to see things from a different angle. Second thing that I see is that the new covenant not only transforms our hearts, but it also goes on to describe that we see that it also transforms our actions. Next slide. Transforms our actions. And it does this in one of two ways. First of all, it has to do with our deeds. In other words, what we do, how we act. Um, And then it will also inform the way that we speak, the things that we say. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4.2. He says, we reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God. And all who are honest know this. Listen to how the message puts this. I think, yeah, is it the next slide? have a little passage here from the message. Okay, this, oh, sorry. I'll just read it to you. It says this in the message. We, we refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes. And we don't twist, uh, twist God's word to suit ourselves. And so what Paul is saying is that how we understand this new covenant, it actually informs our actions, our deeds. It changes us. This is more than just simple behavior modification. See, the fact of the matter is, this is what religion loves to do. Religion loves to say, you need to act a different way, be a different person, do things a different way. And there's a tendency to focus upon the externals. That's not being transformed by the new covenant. With the new covenant, in fact, you could... Let me put it this way. If you're a parent and you have little ones, if all you ever try to do is just manipulate their behavior to make them fall suit, to make them act a certain way, and that's the only thing you do, and you don't communicate to them the beauty of the gospel, you are literally training. You ready for this? You are training miniature Pharisees. That's all you're doing. You're training miniature Pharisees because your kids will learn how to act in a behavior that makes you happy, but inside their heart, there's not this overwhelming desire to please God. And there's a difference. You can act a certain way, behave a certain way without the the longing, the passion, the desire to actually love and honor and serve and worship God with our deeds. So what we see here is that the gospel, this new Covenant actually transforms the way that we act because when we realize who we are, a new people washed by God and cleansed by God and recreated by God, we have new desires and our desires come in sync with the heart and the mind and the actions and the attitudes of God. So we begin to, to put it another way, we begin to love the things that God loves, we begin to hate the things that God hates because our heart is shared with God. We are partnering. That's why I love the image of partnership. There is a partnership that God says, I'm, I'm choosing you, I'm selecting you, I'm calling you to come partner with me, be a part of what I'm doing. So that means a thorough, complete, uh, a complete transformation of all that we are. The second thing we see is that it impacts what we say, our words. Uh, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, uh, verse 5, chapter 4, it says, we see we don't go around preaching about ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ our Lord. As Paul describing, he's saying our message, what we say, uh, Jesus informs everything about us. It doesn't mean that we go around and you're always like preaching a sermon. I don't think that's necessarily at all what Paul is trying to describe. Um, Paul obviously was a preacher and he definitely had a lot of sermons. But for the normal person just trying to figure out how to walk with Jesus, it means that Jesus is our message. It means that Jesus informs and transforms who we are, our words. He has something to say about what we say. Um, and so the reality is our words are transformed. And the final one is, I want to take a look at this and wrap this up, 
is that the new covenant transforms our attitudes. In particular, our attitude towards suffering. Just listen to how Paul writes this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says this, We never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every single day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them that will last forever. And we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen that will last forever. This is a radically different perception, perspective change. So in other words, the concept of the new covenant actually transforms our attitudes or the way that we see our perspective, maybe a way, another way of thinking about this. Um, a little bit earlier in the passage, Paul actually talks about the different types of challenges and struggles that he found himself facing. And the point is, is the way this new covenant transforms us because we begin to see that if you're a follower of Jesus, your life is intricately linked to the story of Jesus. And at the very center of the Jesus story is a Messiah, a king, that suffered, that suffered. We can't miss, miss this big E on the eye chart. We have Messiah, a king, a Lord that we follow that is not indifferent, not cold, not apathetic to suffering. It's so important to understand this as we move into the season of Advent, as we begin to consider and think about what it meant for God to become man, one of the most remarkably powerful stories that God is not indifferent to the suffering and the pain of this world in general and your pain specific is that rather than pulling away from it or creating another universe or another solar system that he specifically spent time and affection on, he focused on this one and came into this world, this earth, by taking upon himself flesh and blood. That's what it means for God to know and to understand and to be with us in our suffering, that he drew near to us when he could have pulled away, yet he didn't. He didn't. And the reality is we see a God that draws near into our suffering. And so this is one of the reasons why Paul could look at this and say, the narrative of my life is radically transformed and informed by the narrative of Christ. That Jesus was one who suffered. He was one that was tortured. He was one that endured hardship. He was one that endured heartbreak. He was one that endured what it felt to have friends turn their backs on him. He was one that felt the anguish and the pain, the physical pain of physical torment and torture in a body. And yet, though death took him, he rose again from the dead. He conquered it. And what Paul is saying is that as Christ went and as we are in Christ, so will we go. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that we don't avoid suffering. It means that when we suffer, we go through suffering with a mindset that is informed by our king. Does that make sense? It's radically different. It's not that we ignore it or we turn our backs on it or we turn away from it. It actually means that we face it in a way that we see our Savior has faced it. We face it in a way that we know that God will help and we weigh it in comparison with what God promises in the future. And this is what Paul is doing. He's basically, just before this, goes through his laundry list of suffering and pain and difficulty and challenge that he himself had gone through. And yet he summarizes all this. And he says, look, I realize that the suffering of this present world 
none of it as profoundly impacting and terrifying and anxiety-producing it may be can actually be compared to the glory, the beauty that will one day be revealed in Christ Jesus that we will participate in, that we'll be partakers of in some future reality. When? We don't know. But at some point, we have this hope that this is what God will do. This is what the new covenant is all about. It invites us. It's always an invitation for us to take a look at the little trees that we have in our hands that we've been carrying around that are bearing forth dead fruit, dead branches, moldy elements on them that are just part of death. And to recognize we have a God that invites us to lay that aside, to partner with him, to receive the gift that he offers us, and to be forgiven, to be washed, to be cleansed from our past, from our sin, to find hope in him in the future that he offers us. This is what the new covenant is all about. It's always open to all of us. So I want to wrap this up as we just consider and think about this. And for you to ask the question, what story defines your life? What story do you find yourself in? What story do you find informing and speaking to and transforming your life? What are the voices that you listen to that so oftentimes feel so tantalizing, that are so filled with hope and promise, and yet at the end of the day are part of this endless echo chamber of brokenness and death? The invitation of the gospel is always to recognize those things that we're holding on to that will always produce constant brokenness and death and to trust this God who invites us to trust him, to partner with him, which means to allow him to carry our sin, our grief, our shame, our brokenness, our oppression, and in exchange, he justifies us. He makes us right in his presence. He cleanses us and washes us and fills us with his very presence, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit. God's very presence resides in his people. So therefore, we now, as followers of Jesus, filled with his very presence, can then now go out and be part of this broken world and just like Jesus, show love and compassion. Christians, out of all people, should be the most compassionate to those that are suffering, that are grief-ridden, that are filled with anxiety. It should be the most compassionate to those who feel alienated and broken and ruined. Because this is a story we've been adopted by. So my encouragement to you is to ask yourself the question, what story defines you? What story are you living in? And if you are a follower of Jesus to remind yourself of the story of this new covenant, that you have life, that God has done something profoundly good and beautiful for you, and there's hope for you in the future. So I want to finish. Let me pray. Let's respond. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And why don't we all stand, and uh, let's just ask God to inform and transform our hearts and our minds even right now. We have a communion in front and communion in the back. It's a way for us to be reminded of the fact that we have a God that just before Jesus died, takes the bread, breaks it, gives it to his disciples, and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. So you, the implication is that you who are broken can actually be made whole. It's always an invitation to come to be made whole. So why don't we all stand, and let me pray, and we'll just sing a few songs, and we'll wrap up this morning. That sound good? You guys all right? All right, let me pray. God, thank you so much for your great love that you've demonstrated, that you've shown to us. 
And God, as we sing right now, as we remind ourselves of the depth of that love that was broken and bruised for us, God, that uh, the response of our hearts would be one of, of love and affection and worship back to you.